0: 700 years before the time of Christ is sent with a message and it is not one that is necessarily well received. The message is that you've been disobedient Israelites. You've rejected God's plan. You've rejected his will. You've rejected him and now you're going to pay the penalty for it. You are going to be carried off into slavery. You are going to be hauled off by the Babylonians into a slavery that will last several hundred years this is not a happy word any more than it would be for us but it is interspersed if you will isaiah's prophecy his 66 chapters interspersed with a word of hope that all is not lost even in the moment of everything being crushed and broken all is not lost Even in the moment of great darkness, things are not completely without remedy. God is revealing something of himself. He is pulling back the cloak of his own righteousness to let us see that he has a heart for us. The word you're looking for is transcendence, a great theological word. It means God coming down to us because we could never reach up high enough to get to him. God revealing himself to us, simply because God chooses to, not because we deserve it. God making himself known to us, even if his ways are different than our own. And over the course of the talk that we'll do today, we'll talk about four ways that God revealed something about himself, his plan and about his heart for us. That my hope is, as we begin this Advent season, we'll help you prepare not just your home, but your heart. One of the real dangers that we fell into when we stopped celebrating Advent for a long time is the idea that Christmas is all about the preparations of our home, the purchasing of gifts, the preparing of meals, the going to parties. Those are all wonderful things and a beautiful part of the season, but the most important part of Advent, of this season, is getting this part right. That's what Isaiah, in his prophecy, came to talk with us about it because the reality is In Isaiah, we see that Advent started 700 years before the time of Christ. 700 years. I want you to think with me for a moment about 700 years. Let me ask you, what was here in Midland 700 years ago? (laughs) Somebody say flat flat land and mesquite trees. That's what was here, just like it is now. What was here in the United States 700 years ago? Yeah, we can't answer that very well. We don't know because we weren't here either. We think of ourselves as an old country of 250 years, and that is indeed a long time. But let us rejoice that God is much older than that. 700 years in Isaiah's time was no closer to the time of Christ than 700 years ago was for us. How then could Isaiah know something if God didn't make it known? And that, friends, is where we start God making himself known he starts in Isaiah 6 where he reveals that he is holy God is holy his holiness defines him it is his core essence in the first four verses of chapter 6 we see a moment that defines Isaiah's life and most of the time when we talk about this passage, we rush over the first four verses to get to verses 5, 6, and 7, Isaiah's response. But we're not going to do that today. We're going to instead take a look at these first four verses and say, let's see who God wants us to understand himself to be. Let's begin in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, it isn't, friends, that Isaiah and the people of Israel didn't know God was holy. They knew it, but they knew it at a distance. God is holy way out there. But in this moment, God brings Isaiah into the very center of his holiness to help Isaiah understand who God is. One of the real mistakes... That, that many of us make. We're so interested in understanding what God wants from us and who God made us to be that we don't take time to look at who God is and who he's revealed himself to me to be. The reality is, too many times, I can't know who I am until I know who he is. He defines me, not the other way around. My reality is rooted and who God is, not the other way around. So when God reveals his holiness, he reveals something of his character. He's withholding his wrath by not destroying Isaiah, simply by being in the presence of God. He reveals himself simply because he chooses to. We don't see any special merit that Isaiah has. And he reveals himself at the right time, simply because it is the time of God's choosing. It would have been much easier for God to just simply condemn both Isaiah and the people of Israel. Let's remind ourselves of where they've come from. About 250 or maybe as many as 300 years before Isaiah writes, the kingdom is very different. King David, you remember him, the one that slew the giant? King David is on the throne. He, when he steps down, Solomon rises to his place. Israel builds an enormous and beautiful temple for the Lord. It is the very pinnacle of Israel's existence. They will rise no higher than they did in David and Solomon's reign. The kingdom is united They're all together. They're rowing the same direction. We're going to do what you tell us to do, God. We're going to be who you have called us to be. But in the years that followed, things came off the rails. They didn't do what God told them to do. They didn't uphold his word. They didn't listen to his warnings. Prophet after prophet was sent, and... Each one of them was rejected. And we would like to say, we would have done better, we would have been wiser, and maybe that's true, but not likely. Friends, I want to tell you when God reveals his holiness to our friend Isaiah, it is a moment that changes everything. Because it is the first time in Isaiah's prophecy and in really that whole section of the Old Testament that we see God for who he really is. Now, verses 5, 6, and 7 reveal Isaiah's response. It's the part that maybe you're more familiar with, where Isaiah says what he said in the video. A minute ago, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. This, friends, is how God's holiness touches Isaiah. Isaiah now let's fast forward to our time i want to ask you a question and it's an important one how does god's holiness touch you you see the reality is that jesus came at the will of god and with a single purpose to redeem humanity he didn't come to make bad people good he came to make dead people alive and to wrap his cloak of holiness around those of us who would name him as our savior. Oh friends this is how God's holiness should touch us now. My prayer is that that's true for you because the reality also is that without God's holiness we will be condemned to an eternity without him. The reason Jesus came it was because we couldn't reach high enough to grab God's holiness on his on our own. So Jesus brought it down. But how can he do that to a people who are in the dark? Well there's the second thing that God revealed to our friend Isaiah. And it is simple. God is light. He will illuminate God's people. That's a little bit about what you saw In Isaiah's talk there with the little oil lamp. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, this is what the Bible says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Hmm. The darkness, we've known it, haven't we? We've seen it. We've lived it, we've even tasted it. We know what it means to be in the dark. A few years ago, I heard a story about a man who was lost in mammoth caves. Mammoth caves in Southern Kentucky, an enormous and a huge cavernous cave far underneath the ground where no light can seep in. And artificial lights, where they are, are battery or electrically operated. If those lights fail, however, the darkness is overwhelming. This man, somehow or another, had gotten lost in the cave. He sat down trying to figure out what he should do. For there was no way to feel his way out. There was no way to call for anyone, for he'd already tried that. So he did something else. He reached around him and found two rocks. And he began to smack them together, just striking the rocks together. As people began to realize someone was missing, they came looking. And they heard the sound of those rocks being struck together and followed the sound until they found him and brought him out of the cave. One of the park rangers said, it was brilliant of you to bang those rocks together so we could find you. It was a wonderful signal to us. And he said, I didn't do it to signal to you. I did it so the darkness would not overwhelm me. I feared I was losing my mind. This, this friends, is what darkness does to us. Light, however, light changes us. It encourages us, it compels us, it frees us, it liberates us, it gives us joy. And without it, we know what it means to be in the dark. I read a story not long ago about a Norwegian village. I'd love to tell you the name of this village, but it starts with an R-J, and I wasn't quite sure how to say it, so I'll just tell you it was a Norwegian village, all right? They were nestled in the Norwegian mountains, where... For much of the year, the sunlight, when it's angled in such a way, doesn't reach the village. And what they found, while the sunlight was not in that area, they found that people struggled with depression, with sickness, with temperament issues, even physical unwellness, simply because there was no sunlight. Some of the smart cookies in the town got together and they said, hey, we can fix this. All we need is about a million dollars. They gathered up the sufficient funds and they went up on a mountainside high above the village, a, a mountainside that was always in the sunlight. And they constructed there a series of mirrors. Now, you're going to think I'm making this up, but I, I encourage you look it up and you'll find I'm telling the truth they installed a series of mirrors, industrial scale, large mirrors that would track the sun and reflect it into a half a football field-sized area in the town village square. How popular do you think it was to stand in the sunlight? Let me tell you, It looked almost ridiculous to see them all crowded around, but it also was ridiculous to see the picture of some in the dark and some in the light and how close they were. Can I tell you today, friends, God is light. And there are many who would reject God as light simply because they prefer the darkness. And why is that? It's easy to hide things. Anyone who has ever walked to their home in the dark has discovered it's easy to hide things in the night. Like furniture. I'm convinced that furniture moves in the dark. Aren't you? And invariably, God has given us some furniture finders, also known as our toes, that will help us find those pieces of furniture that are walking around. Now, though, Isaiah's prophecy declares, God has turned the light on. He has given us A chance to see. You know, Jesus said this in John chapter 8, I am the light. In Matthew 5, he brings us in on it. You are the light. God is revealing himself. So my question is this. I should take this home with you. Are you walking in the light or flailing in the darkness? You'll be one or the other. My question is, which one is it for you? There's a third thing that God reveals to Isaiah. It's pretty simple, but it is not easy. God's plan and timing are right. He will accomplish his purposes in his time. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline those words. Purposes. And time his plan his time the prophecy that I read to you when we were lighting the candles from Isaiah 7 about a virgin conceiving and bearing a son that's utter nonsense we know how a biology works and that's not the way it happens how then can this be the logic behind it doesn't make sense furthermore In Isaiah 9, 6, the other passage I read for you, it says that a child is going to come to lead. That doesn't make sense either. Only once in all of Israeli history had a child sat on the throne. How, how, how is this going to work? The logic doesn't make sense. All but friends. In Isaiah 55, late in the prophecy Spirit of God whispers something into the heart of Isaiah that we need to hear too. Isaiah 55, eight and nine says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Can I tell you today, friends, God's plans may look absurd, even ridiculous to us, but they are indeed his. His timing is better than mine. Now, when I try to impose my own onto him, well, that can be a problem. I can limit God's capacity in my own life simply by choosing not to trust him by wresting it from his control. Now, does that mean I can limit God's sovereignty? No. No, God knows what I'm doing, and he's allowing me that privilege. But I want you to think with me about this in another way. I have a friend of mine. He has a 2016 Dodge Hellcat. If you know what kind of vehicle that is, you know it is a Hot Rodders Hot Rod. 700-odd horsepower. It's the kind of car that makes a beautiful and rich sound, the kind that makes my wife crazy. She doesn't like those loud cars. I do. She doesn't care for them, and that's okay. God bless her. She can be wrong if she wants to. And I still love her. But, you know, she's not the only one that feels that way. You see, my friend who owns the car, he's had it out on the track and gotten it up and really shown off what it can do. Man, it's a tremendous vehicle. But if he wants his wife to ride in it, If he expects his beautiful bride to get in the vehicle with him, there's one thing and one thing only that he can do to get her in it. He has to turn the dial on what the engine can do down. He has to turn it down to valet mode. Valet mode. That's the one where you give your car away and you let somebody else drive it. And when you turn it down to valet mode, it takes it from about 700-ish horsepower down to 150. It limits the capacity of the engine. It limits the capacity of the car. Now, is the car still capable of more? Absolutely. You turn that switch off of valet mode and it'll go right back to what it was. But she wants it to be limited. She wants it restricted. She likes it turned down. Can I tell you, my friends, many times we do that with God, too. We limit him because it's more comfortable. It's easier. It's simpler. It's more on our control. We can manage it. I want to tell you today, friends, when we come to a place where we don't understand what God is doing or why he's doing it now, that's when we get to decide, is God's plan and is his timing really trustworthy? For Isaiah, the word that he gets is one that is life and millennium and earth-changing, the Lord will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth and shall call his name Emmanuel. This child, he shall be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting. Father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. But don't miss this end in verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 7. It's one of my favorite parts of this whole section. and something we rush right past. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. ha, ha, ha. Nobody else can call it down. Nobody else can live up to it. It will be accomplished simply because God wills it to be so. It's his desire. Think of it this way. Maybe you saw this commercial a few years ago. A young family, father, mother, and a young son go to a piano concert. They've come to hear a virtuoso play. The child had been taking piano lessons. They wanted to encourage him. One parent thought the other one had him. That parent thought the first one had him. And the child slipped away. He'd seen the piano on the stage and he decided everyone should be blessed by his recital too. He slips up onto the stage and without being caught, he sits down at the piano and begins to play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Now, we might smile at that and go isn't that cute how precious and that's part of the point of the commercial who doesn't love a cute kid right but then something unexpected happened the virtuoso for whom everyone had come sneaks up behind the boy whispers in his ear keep playing and reaches around the boy to the same piano the child is playing and adds to twinkle twinkle little star and plays it in a way that only one who really knows how can. At the end, everybody goes wild, cheering. He helps the boy to his feet, and they both take a bow, as if the boy had any role at all, really, that the virtuoso didn't give him. Now, would it have been easier for the real artist, the real pianist, to just jerk the boy off the bench and say, Get out of here, knucklehead! Well, certainly that would have been much easier, but that wasn't why he came any more than it is why Jesus came. It would have been much easier to start over with a more compliant people, a people with easier hearts and more pliable ears. Jesus came for us. I want you to take this home with you. It's an important consideration. Humility acknowledges I'm not equal to God. When I'm willing to give that to God and acknowledge that I need his plan, that I need his timing, that's when I'm beginning to turn a corner. And it means that I've realized what transcendence really does mean. You see, when faced with an illogical problem, I get to choose something I get to to choose to invite God's holiness and sovereignty to greet that problem at the door instead of me trying to fix it on my own. Let us conclude with this. God's deliverance is sure. He can be trusted even when I can't see how. In Isaiah 41 and 43, we have two passages that are simply too important and powerful to leave out this morning. It's a section that I've committed to memory and I commend it to you in that way. You see, this is near the the halfway point, a little bit past halfway point, when the prophecy has already said, you're going to be carried away. The fall is coming and it's not far off. Into that moment, the Lord whispers a word of encouragement into Isaiah's ears. It's one that he shares with us, and it's one that we share in today. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says this, fear not, for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then jump down to Isaiah 43, verse 2 and 3. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You see, being created beings that we are, God knew some things about us and one of them is that in our humanity our emotions sometimes get the best of us sometimes we get carried away with fear anybody besides me ever struggle with that fear it magnifies something that might be rather small into something much much larger fear it causes us to shrink back and to doubt god and to question what are we doing here with this can i tell you today friends fear it will drive us away from God if we allow it. It will cause us to wonder why he's abandoned us when the whole time he's standing ready to receive us if we're willing to trust him. Into of the moment of fear, God whispers this word. I want you to see it again in verse 10 of chapter 41. Fear not. 365 times in the Bible, Those words are uttered. Fear not, for I'm with you. My presence, he's saying, is enough to keep you safe. Be not dismayed, for I'm your God. I'll strengthen you, I'll help you, I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. His care for you, then, is not based on how much you've earned it, but rather on his care for you. Jump on to chapter 43, and you'll see, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Can I tell you today, my friends, and this is good news, it isn't based on who you are, it's based on who he is. I want you to take that home and rejoice in it today. Because when we get that part right, then everything else will come along for the ride. Now, I want you to notice what isn't said here. It doesn't say you won't get wet. It doesn't say you won't get warm. Maybe even toasty warm. It just says it won't overwhelm you. This is the promise that Jesus came to bring. We, his children, receive it gladly. Think back to, with me to when your children were small. And you'd go on a road trip. And you'd drive home and get home late, and they'd fall asleep in the back seat. When you arrived at home, what did you do? Well, you flipped the light on and shouted to them, wake up, knucklehead. No, of course not, of course not. You took them very carefully in your arms, you raised them up and placed them against you, and you carried them to their bed, laid them down, covered them up, and so maybe if you did it really well, they had no knowledge at all of the transition from being in the car to when they arrived in their bed. Can I tell you today, friends, this is the care that we parents give to our children. So if that's how we as parents do it, how much better is God as the perfect parent in caring for us? God will deliver you. I want to send you home with one last thing. Why don't more people find that kind of deliverance? Because they are not willing to look for it. Finding rest in God's presence means looking for it before I need it. I need to plant my roots. I need to set my anchor before the storm comes. For if I wait until that moment, then maybe it will be harder to do so. This, friends, is the hope that Christmas came to bring. Isaiah's prophecies, God's deliverance is sure, God's plan and timing are right. God is holy, God is light. They mean that God is not through with us yet. God still has a future for us. Maybe today you would say, you know, Darren, I've never thought of Advent quite like this. And for the first time, I understand Jesus came for me. Not to form a religion, but to make a relationship with me, to connect my heart with His. Maybe, just maybe, you need to respond to that today. I've prayed for that all week, my friends, all week. I've prayed that God will whisper these same things into your heart and that the power of the Holy Spirit would move in this place and draw you to himself. See, the reality is that we don't have tomorrow and we may not. We can't do anything about yesterday, so this is the only moment God has given us. He may give us more, he may not. My prayer for you is that today you will respond to him Maybe you need to do that by coming down here and talking to me. I'll be waiting for you right down here. Perhaps, just maybe, this moment in time is one that God has given you to join our church. We invite you to do that. Just maybe, this altar is where you need to come. These steps are exactly that, a place for you to come and pray. No one will bother you. Just a chance for you to sit down and talk to the Lord about whatever is on your heart and mind. This day is the one where you will decide what you will do this Advent season. Let's pray together. Because of who you are, Jesus, because of what you've done, we declare, Lord Jesus, our faithfulness to you, our loyalty and our love for you, I pray today, Lord Jesus, for your hand over this invitation time. The song we're going to sing is I Surrender All. Lord, I pray that if we can't mean it, we won't sing it. But if we do mean it, and we need to come to make a decision, that today would be the day we'd do it. I ask God your mercy over each of our lives for the darkness in our world is just as awful as it was in Isaiah's time. Thank you that the same remedy you gave him is the one we enjoy today. I pray, Lord, for those who need to join this church, who need to come to this altar, that you give them freedom to do exactly that. So now, Lord Jesus, we give this invitation time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.